for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. All right. So Thanks again. I'm going to step backwards. I don't know if you've noticed, we've kind of, we've been in the Psalms, but I started at the front and chose random Psalms moving forward. Um, but I'm going to step backwards today to get and teach through Psalm 51. I told you guys some time ago, two or three weeks ago maybe, that there are two Psalms that I spend so much time in. And they are Psalms 91 and Psalms 51. 91 for the feeling of protection and peace that God offers me. And 51 for the promise of restoration and forgiveness that God promises. Amen. And so I'm going to have a very deliberate conversation with you verse by verse through Psalm 51 over the next two weeks. Um, because I am convinced that many of us don't understand what repentance is. And when we do repent, oftentimes it's more flippant than it should be. And so I want to talk about what true repentance is according to Scripture. Uh, not to condemn us, uh, but to make us understand that God has expectation of us. Amen? And so this series titled Awake, Our, Awake My Soul, let me tell you, your, your soul will quickly deaden and needs awakening if you don't live in a constant state of repentance. And so I want to talk to you, like I said, the first half I'm going to cover today, verses 1 through 9, and then 10 through 19 I'll cover next week uh, because there's, there's two different thoughts. There's what he wants specifically from God, that he desires to be cleansed in the first half, and his responsibility and what he promises God he will do because he is cleansed. Um, in the second half of Psalms 51. And so I think those require two different conversations because we are forgiven, amen? I mean, I get a hearty amen for the fact that we are redeemed, that we serve a faithful God, that whatever hope that we have of forgiveness, of blessing, of provision, of peace, of all the things that we've talked about up to this point only exists because God is faithful. Yeah. And so... Because he's faithful, he expects, because we're supposed to act like Christ, he expects that we are to be faithful. And so what he does for us, he expects to do through us for others. And anyway, that's the reason why it's going to be two sermons or two teachings, uh, because I want to really take the time to focus there. Let me talk to you real fast. At the front of mine, Psalm 51 my Bible says this. It's kind of the intro, the prelude, if you will. It says, A contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is called a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. Let me tell you what contrite means. Contrite means legitimately remorseful and guilt-ridden. If we don't start from a place where we understand the depravity and the depth of our sin, how can we possibly ask God to forgive it? 
Amen. And so he's talking. This is David's psalm to God when he was called out by Nathan the prophet. I've heard this said about politicians. Uh, you know how they'll they'll get caught with their hand in a cookie jar or doing something they shouldn't be doing or having an affair or not just politicians, everybody. And then they are automatically remorseful when people are around and they start apologizing. What they mean is, I apologize that I got caught. Or I'm sorry if I offended you. That I'm sorry I offended you or I apologize that I got caught is not repentance. That's not remorseful. It isn't guilt-ridden. It's provocation of the person trying to manipulate you and cause you to sway back to them. And so, but with David, it's different. David truly allows God to crush him. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But let me tell you about what's happening here. I want to read specifically, specifically, um, the story where this happens, where Nathan has to come to him and why he has to come to him. I'm not going to read all of it, but 2 Samuel chapter 11, let me give you a summation. David got lazy and comfortable. I know that because in verse 1 of 11, it says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that all Israel, uh, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Ray. Rabah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. The best way to get yourself in trouble is to not where you be where you should be in the first place. He knew that his place wasn't to be at home. He knew that he was supposed to be somewhere else, doing something else, accomplishing something else. Most of the things that cause us to get in trouble is because we haven't put barriers around ourselves and allow ourselves to stay or be in places we shouldn't be in in the first place. And that's what's happening to David. And so David, now having no accountability because he's not surrounded by the people that he trusted the most to hold him accountable because they're off to war doing what they should be doing, he, he's wandering around on his rooftop. And as you can imagine, his rooftop, because he's the king, is, overlooks the city, and you guys are familiar with this story, but for the sake of just covering where we're at, it says he looked down upon Bathsheba. Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, one of David's mighty men, one of his greatest fighters, and he was watching her take a bath. Here's the thing. It never says how long David watched Bathsheba. I can remember hearing this preach when I was a child or even as an adult, and I, it, was just, it was always inferred almost that David saw Bathsheba, had to have her, and went and got her. This ultimately is the case, but let me tell you, it's more likely because of the depravity of what he was doing that he peaked first, went back, looked again the next day, looked again the next day until ultimately he convinced himself that it was okay to do what he wanted to do. Did you know sin is a slow fade? There are things that I've done, things that I'm sure many of you have done, that if you were at the surface of them thought, thought about it, you would think, 
There's no way I would ever do that. But because you weren't in the place you should be, doing the things you should be doing, and you've allowed yourself to lust continuously after something, you start having conversations with yourself about why it should be okay. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that sin is a slow fade. Let me, let me explain to you where. In James chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, I appreciate that, Trent. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, don't get freaked out. He's not talking just about sexual lust. He's about anything that would, that would capture your heart and steal it from you. He says, enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust was conceived, when the thought takes conception, when the thought becomes reality, it gives birth to sin. And then that sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I think this is what was happening to David. I believe he allowed his thoughts to run rampant. He lusted physically after Bathsheba. His lust was conceived, gave birth to sin, and in that sin brought forth judgment. Amen? But that ain't the worst thing that David did. Turns out he ended up getting pregnant, or she ended up getting pregnant. He didn't get pregnant. I don't care what the world will tell you. That's not possible. <laughs> Bathsheba got pregnant. I just want to make sure everybody's clear. Bathsheba got pregnant. David freaks out because he, he snatched back from his place of oh and realizes that one of the most dangerous men that he knows and someone that he's held allegiance to and someone that's been loyal to him, he has sinned against. He has gotten another man's wife pregnant. And so he calls Uriah in from the field and he said, hey, how's it going? I know you've been fighting hard. I'm summarizing poorly. I want you to go home, just take a couple of days to relax, um, clean yourself up, and stay in your own house. So essentially he's saying, once you clean yourself up, present yourself to your wife, make love to your wife, and then I can blame her pregnancy on you. Uriah, because he's a man of loyalty, says goes home, but or doesn't go home, instead stays with his men. Because he wasn't going to have his men by themselves. He knew that his responsibility to be was to be where they were like David should have known in the first place. Amen? I know this is a lot of context, but let me tell you, there's a lot of nuggets in here for how to stay away from sin in the first place. And so, ultimately, he refuses to sleep with his wife, to, to sleep with his own wife. And then David calls his general in and says, I need you to put Uriah on the front lines where the most dangerous action is happening. Why does he want that to happen? Because he wants him killed. He wants Bathsheba for himself. He has to claim Bathsheba for himself so that he can end up looking like the good guy. He died in battle. I love him. I'm going to take care of his family. I've taken her in, and now she's become part of my family and is bearing me a child. That doesn't work out for him. Because, well, I mean, it does work out for him. Uriah dies. They come and give that report to him. 
And then he goes and gets Bathsheba and marries her. Could I tell you, people all the time talk about the sin of Bathsheba. When you were the king back in the day, you told people to come, they come. It said that he sent people to go get her, and he slept with her. So he has done some horrible things. He's lusted. He's committed murder, adultery. Uh, He's been deceptive. And God calls him on the carpet through Nathan the prophet. Understand, though, that he's, I'm not sure David fully understands the weight of what he's done. And so many of us have been in the same place where we have convinced ourselves that the sins that we have committed aren't that big a deal. And I tell you right now, they're a huge deal. Because the Bible says that you are made in the image of God. And to rebel against being the image of God means that you're reflecting a negative image of God to people who don't know him and the rest of his creation. That deserves death, not just because he said so, but because he's glorious and we have no right to try to diminish his glory by doing what we want to do. Everybody with me? All right. So then Nathan comes in, and he hits him strong. Nathan is the prophet. He says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David after the marriage happened and said to him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. He says, this rich guy has all this stuff, but this one guy, this poor guy, only has one thing that he loved more than any other thing in the world. Now a traveler came to the rich man. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor, the rich man, took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this is, I told you, I said, I don't think he understood the weight of his own sin. This verse proves it. You It says, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. You want to talk about yakking out of both sides of your neck? You're doing one thing on one hand and doing something else on the other hand. You're trying to sit in a seat of judgment when you should be sitting in the penalty box. And Nathan tells him this, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of God it is of Israel, it is I who anointed you king of Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And he tells him, he said, for this you have been found guilty. The judgment of the Lord is on you. And from that place, David comes to realize the fade of sin that he's allowed himself to live in. 
Sometimes it takes a true friend to stand up, slap you in the teeth real good to make you realize that where you are isn't where you should be. What you're doing isn't what you should be doing. And the things that you've told others aren't the things that you should be telling others. Amen? It's time for the church body, corporately and individually, to stop talking out of both sides of our neck. We aren't judge unless you call yourself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, the Bible says, I'm supposed to judge your fruit. You're supposed to judge each other's fruit. All of us in the life of other people should love them enough to go forward to them and say, Thus saith the Lord, you are this man. You should stop doing this. Because it might be your words that bring them back to themselves and cause them to have this contrite heart in the first place. Everybody okay? All right. So, with all of that in mind, David sets up a great outline for what true repentance looks like. And I'm going to go through it hoping that maybe we might be provoked to mirror it ourselves. Psalm 51, 1 through 9 reads like this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Against you, you only, everybody say you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden parts you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my transgressions. Boy, let me tell you what he wanted. He just wanted to be cleansed. He wanted to be free of this guilt that he felt. Verse Hold on, I'll find it in just a second because I don't have it marked in my Bible. Verse 8. You want to know what conviction feels like? You want to know what David felt like? I get people tell me, ask me from time to time, Pastor, what does conviction feel like? Am I under conviction? I'm not sure what. Let me tell you what it feels like, what true repentance, what true conviction that leads to repentance feels like. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. You ever been in that place to where you were so convinced that God's judgment was against you, that you couldn't do anything, that you couldn't move, that you couldn't do anything but fall on your face in reverence for the Lord? Because if you haven't, you should be. The first time you came to Christ Jesus, man, your heart was beating out of your chest. You began sweating. You were wondering, what is happening to me? Right? Let me tell you what is happening to you. God, through Christ Jesus and his Holy Spirit, determined to break every bone in you so that you couldn't move until you face the reality of who he is. And we're required to do the same thing. 
Amen. Let your bones be broken before the Lord. Allow yourself to get on the carpet from time to time. Allow yourself to jump around. Allow yourself to celebrate. Do all the stuff. But ultimately, at the end of every day, at the beginning of every day, in the middle of every day, seek God for repentance with a true and contrite heart. Amen? So, we see that David cries for mercy in verse 1 and 2. I'm just going to kind of go through these verses. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me through my iniquity and cleanse me from my guilt. Two things come together in these verses. First, David recognizes a profound need for God's mercy. There's three words that he uses specifically here. Be gracious to me through your loving kindness and your compassion. Did you know none of us deserve the forgiveness that God gave us, that he extended mercy via his grace and continues extending that mercy through his loving kindness? That's what David was asking him. He said, I don't deserve what I'm asking you for. I don't deserve what I'm about to plea for, and we don't deserve it either. But by God's grace, extended in his mercy and proven longly in his long suffering, we can have confidence that in Christ Jesus, we can walk in the wholeness that David was wanting to know again so, so badly. And we should stay in that place. We should stay in that place. I'm going to say it one more time. We should stay in that place. Why was he so concerned about God's mercy? Why didn't he just, back in the day, just go offer a sacrifice? Because that's what was required, right? Just, just a sacrifice. Because adultery and murder, there was no sacrifice for those things. There was only one consequence for adultery and murder in David's time, and that was death. He knew he didn't deserve anything but death, but he was pleading on the grace of God that he would extend him mercy and continue extending him mercy through his loving kindness. Guys, we got to get to a place as a church where we recognize that we've committed sin. We can't, we can't sacrifice enough for we can't do enough stuff. You can't give enough money to grow ministry. You can't work enough mission outreaches. You can't serve in the church enough. You can't show up to the church enough to walk in the grace, the mercy, and the loving kindness that he gave you because he loves you more than any other thing. Amen? So pay attention to the verbiage. He understands that he didn't deserve any of those things. Secondly, he was profoundly aware that his sin, of his sin and its true nature. He would have to be. Otherwise, why would he need grace? Why would he need mercy? Why would he need compassion? It continues by saying in these two verses, he uses the word transgression, iniquity, and sin. 
to describe what he's doing. These aren't all the same thing. These are different things. Transgression means crossing a forbidden border. It means he was walking in serious rebellion. God drew a line in David's life, in the life of the people of Israel, and in your life, and says, this is what righteousness looks like, and this is what unrighteousness looks like. I need you to grab a hold of this, because there's only two, ultimately, two kinds of people that are in the world. Those who are righteous, and those who are unrighteous. Those who will live according to the Spirit, and those who will die. An eternal damnable death separate from God. We have crossed an imaginary, or not an imaginary border, we have crossed a border that God himself set by the stripes and the blood of his son Jesus. And it's time we go back across the border. We ask God to relieve us of our transgressions. Not just our transgressions, but we have to have those relieved because we, having crossed that border, have placed ourselves in conflict with the almighty creator God. Let me tell you, I've been in a lot of fights in my life. And I mean physical fights, like boop, boop, boop. And fighting with the mighty, almighty, all-knowing creator God doesn't seem like a fight I can win. Romans 8, 7 says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to God, for it is not even able to do so. Then he says iniquity. Not only have we crossed an imaginary, or not an imaginary border, a forbidden border, we've caused ourselves to walk in iniquity, which literally means perversion. We have perverted the original plan of God over our life. And we think that's okay. We think God loved us enough to breathe life into us. And we're going to live the life we want to live. Even though we know what his commandments are. What his word says, Psalm 119. What are the meditations of your heart? But not just iniquity, but sin in of itself. Which literally just means to fall short. So here's the thing. We've crossed a border. David crossed a border, perverted that which was intended to be perfect and fell short of the glory of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I think these two verses summarize most of our lives at some point very well. We have crossed an imaginary border that we have perverted God's original plan for our life and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. But you know what's beautiful? His mercy, his grace, and his loving kindness. That's what he had to peddle with. That's all, that's all that David could negotiate with was God's grace, his mercy, and his loving kindness. Can I tell you that's all you've got to? Because like David in adultery and murder, death is your consequence. But you know what I praise God for? 
that even while I was still a sinner, Christ died that I might have eternal life. Amen. But he, he carries on, David does. Doesn't just acknowledge the magnitude of his sin. He confesses that sin. Verses 3 through 6 read like this. For I know, everybody say, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That means it follows him everywhere. Y'all ever had a sin just follows y'all everywhere? Like you, you don't even want to go to the throne room of God because you're all, man, I can't ask God for forgiveness for that. Then he's going to know. You know, I'm going to be responsible for it once I speak it out of my mouth. Can I tell you, God knows already. Just get it out of the way. It's going to chase you down. It's going to knock you down. It's going to beat you up, and it's going to cause you to fall short. Just let it go. The great thing about the Father that we have is that he expects us, gave us the ability through Christ Jesus to walk confidently into his throne room, expecting to receive what? In our time of need. Amen. And David knew that too. So anyway, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my mother and in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Here's the three verses, three things he says about himself. I'm a sinner. Can you start there? Sometimes, I'm going to be honest with you. I try to be as transparent with you guys as I can be. There have been times as a pastor where I've fallen on the floor in my office and couldn't say anything else, but God, I'm a sinner fell short. You don't think your heartbreak and your tears have a full conversation with God when you can't say anything else? But you know what you have to be? You have to be humble enough to say, I'm in need. God, I don't deserve the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness, but I can't do it on my own. So I acknowledge who I am. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner redeemed by grace. But I constantly and consistently still sin. Which means I need to constantly and consistently admit that I'm a sinner. And ask with a contrite, a broken heart for God to forgive me. Then he said, I know that my sin is against you. Hmm. Y'all ever been around somebody, they get caught doing something, they try to justify their sin? Oh, well, man, you just don't understand why I did it. You know, it was just a little compromise, but it was for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, meanwhile, this woman over here is pregnant. Your best friend's dead. He didn't try to justify himself. He straight up said, 
My sin is against you. That seems weird, doesn't it? Because God ain't the one David murdered. God's not the one that he committed adultery against. Physically, he did spiritually. He wasn't the one that he physically sinned against. But let me tell you, all sin first is an affront to God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask forgiveness of other people too. But let me tell you, that should be about 10 steps behind me allowing God to break my bones so that I ask and understand and acknowledge and not justify my sin, but acknowledge it before him and ask him to remove it from me. Church, it's time that we start identifying ourselves for who we are. We are sinners, determined to be sinful, but determined to walk, though, righteously and acknowledge that God is capable of extending us grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and all of those things. But ultimately, our sin is against Him. What am I trying to do today? Man, I ain't trying to do much other than tell you, look in yourself and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you, to peel back that you are a sinner, that you sinned against Him. And then He says, I know that I am responsible for my own sin. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So he's saying, I was born into sin. We were born into sin, according to Romans. Not only are we born into sin, we act in sin. And we need forgiveness. All right. And then finally, David seeks that forgiveness. 7 through 9, he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Mm. Purify me. Remove all that stuff from me. Wash me. Make me as pure as the fresh-driven snow. Though my sin be before me like scarlet, Make me white as wool. That's what he's asking. He said, whatever is in me, take it out of me. Whatever is in me, carve it out of me. Whatever it costs me, remove it from me. Just, God, I want to be right with you. I'm willing. We should all be willing to set aside everything we are and everything that we have to stand righteously before the one who made us righteous which isn't any sacrifice except for Christ's sacrifice. It is only by the stripes, the blood, and the sanctification of, that, of us through that blood that we have the possibility of being saved, of being washed, of being purified, of having our sins blotted out, our iniquities blotted out from us. What does it mean to blot out? Or, I'm sorry, wash out. There's a, in that time, they wrote on papyrus. If you're familiar with what papyrus is, it's the kind of paper they used. It's very expensive to make. And so they would write on it. And then if they made a mistake or if they wanted to reuse it, they would wash it. They would flip it over, wash it on the back, 
and then turn it sideways and then write on it again once all the marks were removed. That's what he's asking God to do. God, turn me around. Wash me clear and write a new story on me. That's what repentance is. Asking God, forgive me. Wash me clean. Turn me around and write a new story on me. I don't know about y'all, man, but I, I need a new story every now and then. I fall short of the glory of God every now and then. But I'm trying. I go to bed every night and ask God if there's something in me, something I didn't do, something I should have done, that I didn't even realize at the time I was doing, forgive me, Lord. Write a new story on me. And he will. I'm, I'm asking you. I'm, I'm not asking you. I'm imploring you to read this set of verses again and again and again until they get so deeply ingrained in your spirit that you can't help but fall before the throne of God and ask him to clear, to cleanse you and to wash you and to blot out. That is to completely remove like chiseling an inscription off a stone, your sin from you, because he will. You know what the good thing about scripture is? The Bible says if we ask for forgiveness, God's faithful to forgive. But that ain't the best part but restore us back to righteousness. Y'all ever forgive somebody, but I'll, you know, I forgive you, but there ain't probably no reason why we be talking anymore. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? God didn't say that. God said, I forgive you, and I'm going to put you back in your right place. Let's let him do that. Amen?